When Donna Matthews told friends and family about the abuse she suffered at the hands of her ex-boyfriend, Michael Guyan, they believed her. Donna was in fear for her life and the lives of her family members. But would a digital trail of thousands of text messages tell the jury a different story? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. All right, here we are for another week and another case. This case will explore the topic of intimate partner violence, and you will see in the show notes a few places you can reach out to if you need support, assistance, or advice. I also want to do a quick plug for an organization in New Jersey called Forever Your Overwatch Foundation, which provides home security and self-defense classes. A listener named Kara told me about it. It's an organization she works with, and there is a link to learn more or to make a donation in the show notes. We're talking about Michael Guyan and Donna Matthews, whose romantic relationship was volatile while together, and even worse after they split up. I asked in a live stream for case suggestions, and I'm pretty sure someone recommended it there, but I couldn't find it where in all the comments, so remind me who you are and I'll give you a shout out next week. This case was primarily covered in the local media, so you'll see two names again and again on the sources on my website, the Kenosha News and WGTD Public Radio. So let's talk about Michael and Donna. They were in their 40s when they met, so they both had kids and past relationships by this point. Michael had been born in Chicago, and in 1996, he started a relationship with a woman named Jamie. They never married, but were together for 14 years, in which time they had a son together. They also began a business investing in rental properties. Michael was a stay-at-home dad for a period of time, and he began managing these rental properties that they bought in Kenosha, Wisconsin. For those who don't know where Kenosha is, it's just a little more than an hour north of Chicago if you just follow the coast of Lake Michigan north. Michael and Jamie stayed together until 2010 when Jamie took their son and moved to Seattle. Though she never called the police or made any type of formal complaint against Michael, She did later accuse him of physical abuse over the course of their relationship. After the breakup, Michael stayed in Kenosha and continued to manage the rental properties. Sometime after he and Jamie split is when Michael met Donna Matthews through mutual friends. Donna was outgoing and charming, and Michael was pretty introverted, but he loved travel, hiking, photography, all things Donna enjoyed, especially traveling. Donna was a single mother who grew up in Michigan. Wanting to see the world, she enlisted in the Army right out of high school. It's while she was stationed in Germany that she met and married her husband, And when she was discharged from the military, they moved back to the United States together. 
They were raising their two daughters in Kenosha when Donna filed for divorce in 2010. So when Donna and Michael met, their kids weren't little, so they had freedom to go on all these adventures and spend a lot of time together. Michael loved Donna's charm and her personality, and Donna loved that Michael was well-traveled and intelligent. But like I said, this isn't exactly a romance made for the ages. They dated off and on for a few years, meaning they fought and broke up frequently, but eventually decided to move in together. The timeline has changed with retellings, but the best I can tell, it would have been late 2014 or early 2015 when they officially moved in together. In July 2015, Donna called things off with Michael, and she told him and everyone else that this time, it was for good. She and her younger daughter were leaving Kenosha entirely. Michael did not want the relationship to end. He was calling Donna's family and friends and telling them how much he loved her. But Donna was warning them that Michael wasn't in love with her, he wanted to control her. That's why she had to leave the state entirely. Michael refused to stop texting her, stop calling her, and he began to stalk her. Donna applied for a restraining order in Kenosha shortly after the breakup. In her filing, Donna wrote that they had dated for about six years on and off. She had lived with him for roughly seven months. She said that there were red flags, like Michael showing up at her job and refusing to leave, that made her fearful for her own safety. The order was granted, and Donna left Kenosha in September. She and her daughter went to New Orleans first, and Donna said Michael texted her a picture of the Airbnb that she was staying at, just to let her know he was nearby and he knew where she was. Donna then went to Colorado, and he found her there. Arizona, same thing. She finally went to North Carolina to stay with one of her brothers, telling her family that she was fleeing from Michael, but somehow Michael found her again. Donna was relating all of this to her friends and family as it happened. She was telling them that Michael seemingly tracked her everywhere she went. She couldn't get him to leave her alone. Worse, he was texting and calling with threats to hurt her and her family. They were mostly framed as, come back to me or else. In November 2015, Four months after the breakup and in the midst of all these threats and stalking, Donna did a very curious thing. She returned to Kenosha and she asked the court to dismiss the protective order that she had against Michael. She did not tell anyone she was going to do this and she was still telling her friends and family that Michael was stalking her and she was afraid of him. Within a few months of this, Donna told her family that she was leaving the mainland entirely. She was going to go to Hawaii. She and a friend named Joy decided to rent an apartment together on the island of Maui. 
Donna told Joy that moving that far away would be a huge help. Because Michael couldn't get there easily. You don't need a lot of money to fill up your gas tank and drive around the country. But when you have to deal with flights all the way to Hawaii, Donna was fairly confident that Michael wouldn't go to those lengths or that expense. So Joy was a little surprised when she noticed that Donna was not just getting texts from Michael while they were in Hawaii together, but Donna was texting him back. And not a little, there were a lot of text conversations. But Donna said the only reason she was still communicating with Michael was because he was blackmailing her. This might not make sense, because what could he blackmail her with? Well, he had a few things. For one, Michael had gained access to her storage unit back in Wisconsin and had helped himself to some of her sentimental belongings, things that she wanted back. We're talking her father's ashes, so not little things. He also had photographs of Donna, some nude and some partially, that he was threatening to send to her family. But then, Donna announced that Michael was actually coming to Hawaii, and they were going to go to couples counseling. So it seemed to Joy like they were actually getting back together, and it wasn't just a text relationship to keep him happy. That said, that is Joy's point of view. There are text messages of Michael saying that he was going to Maui, and Donna was saying, no, 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 don't come. She told him she started a new life there. This was her time. Stay away. And he came anyway. When Michael did make it to the island, Donna did meet up with him. She said she didn't feel like she had much of a choice. He was on the island. It's not very big. He was going to find her anyway. And in this same time period, things were weird between Donna and Joy. Joy said Donna became verbally abusive towards her and had changed the locks on their shared apartment. In the end, Joy was unnerved by the whole thing. She was afraid of Michael based on what Donna had said, but she was also feeling wary of Donna. On March 14th, 2016, the now 50-year-old Donna filed a restraining order against Michael in Maui with the help of a domestic violence advocacy group. On the application, Donna again characterizes this as an on-and-off relationship for about six years, and she wrote that she had repeatedly moved to get away from Michael. She listed threats Michael had made against her, things like he was going to put a gun to her head, and threats against her family that he was going to kill her daughters, that he was going to light her brother's house on fire. She said he also stole property, blackmailed her with revenge porn, and that he physically restrained her by holding her and blocking the door. 
The judge issued a temporary restraining order against Michael that banned him from showing up to Donna's work, going to her apartment, or approaching her. The usual terms you would expect. In Hawaii, the TRO can be granted without prior notice to the other party. Basically, it's granted at the time you apply if the judge accepts your application. This TRO is valid for up to 180 days, but usually there is a hearing held long before that, within two weeks, where the other party can fight it. At this hearing, the judge hears both sides and then they can issue a final order of protection that can last much longer. But it doesn't look like this went that far because on March 26th, Michael violated the temporary order. While Donna was waiting at the bus stop on her way to work, Michael pulled up in his car, got out, and walked up to her. Donna used her cell phone to call 911 as she hid behind a tree. Calling 911 is exactly what you're supposed to do if someone violates a protective order. The scene was disturbing enough to other people at the bus stop that they also called 911. Michael left before the police got there, but they did pick him up later and he was in lockup for three days. The Maui DA basically told him to get off the island or face six months in jail. Michael opted to leave. He returned to Kenosha and moved into one of his rental properties. He hadn't been in Hawaii for more than a month or two. Now back in Kenosha, Michael began making good on one of his threats. He began posting revenge porn on Facebook. He even messaged some of these photos to people on Donna's friends list. There are two ways these posts have been spun, depending on the story you're telling. I'm leaving the conclusions here up to you, so I'm going to give you both versions. Interpretation number one. Michael posted these nudes and lewds of Donna to Facebook as straight-up revenge for her ending things and having him arrested for the TRO violation. Amongst the people he sent the photos to, some, according to Donna, were minors. In 2014, Donna had taken a trip to India to work with disadvantaged youth. She later Facebook-friended some of the people she met while she was there, and not all of them were adults. Now, the other interpretation on these posts, it has been portrayed as Michael defending himself. He had learned what Donna had been telling people about him, that he was abusive and that he was stalking her. She told people that she kept moving away from him and he mysteriously always found her. Well, some of the pictures he posted were taken during the time period Donna had told people she was trying to get away from Michael. 
Now, it turns out that while Donna claimed she was having no voluntary contact with Michael and that he was still tracking her down, she was actually telling him where she was and she was meeting up with him. The on and off nature of their relationship had continued in secret and Michael was now exposing Donna's lies to defend himself. That's the interpretation. So I'm sure he could have done that without sharing her intimate photos, since there were plenty of text messages without photos that proved she was in contact with him and she told him where she was. He purposely chose the photographs he knew would be most embarrassing to her, and there is absolutely no defense to that. And there is absolutely no defense for sending nude pictures to minors. So under no circumstances is there any interpretation that makes this defensible. But the difference in these two portrayals, these motives of revealing these pictures, if you will, is going to come up later. As these photographs are appearing online, Donna begins calling and emailing the Kenosha Police Department to try to enforce her restraining order. Restraining orders across state lines can be tricky with jurisdiction, particularly in a case like this. The violations were in text messages and online postings while she's in one state and Michael is in another. But this restraining order should have been enforceable. Donna exchanged emails with Sergeant Daniel Cooper with the Kenosha PD a dozen times from about April 2016 to June 2016, trying to get this restraining order enforced. Wisconsin also passed a law against revenge porn back in 2014. The law makes it illegal to disseminate someone's private images, even if they were taken with consent, even if they were sent to you. You can't post them without permission. So Michael was both violating the restraining order and he was actively breaking Wisconsin law. Sergeant Cooper called Michael, he got his voicemail, and he left a message telling him to stop it. And that was his version of handling it, leaving a voicemail. The only times Donna was successful in getting Michael to stop posting or at least hit a pause on posting photographs was when she would try to appease him by acting like they were going to get back together. But these weren't exactly enthusiastic messages. The last time she agreed to get back together with him, her message is basically her just conceding that they're going to have to work it out since she was so humiliated by his posts and she knew there were more to come if she didn't get back together with him. And then she said she guessed he did what he needed to do to get her back. So on June 11th, thinking they're getting back together, Michael bought Donna a ticket to come back to Kenosha on July 5th. A week later, on the 19th, 
Donna tried to talk Michael into flying over to Hawaii to see her sooner, not to wait until the 5th. These communications cannot be characterized by calling them anything other than sexting. Though Michael was tempted, the tickets were too expensive that last minute, and he figured Donna was going to be coming back to Kenosha soon enough. On June 23rd, Donna sent her last email to the police. She mentioned the humiliation over these postings, that Michael wouldn't stop, and she said, I don't know what to do. Except Donna did know what to do, and she had been planning it for a couple of months. She was going to eliminate the threat herself. Donna had tried to hire a hitman to take out Michael, including hiring one of her brothers, but she had no luck. Then she came up with a new plan. She would lure Michael to Maui and then push him off a cliff. That was why on June 19th, she had tried so hard to get Michael to fly over. When that plan failed to work, she emailed the police one last I-don't-know-what-to-do email, and then the next day booked a plane ticket to Chicago for July 4th, the day before Michael expected her to arrive. On the 4th, Donna texted Michael like she was still in Maui when she was really on her way to Chicago. When she landed, Donna took a bus to Kenosha, where her 54-year-old brother Derek Matthews picked her up and took her to a hotel room that he paid for with his debit card, and he left her there to rest. Later that evening, he went back and gave Donna a fully loaded 38 and some dark clothes. Donna gave Derek $500 for the gun. Then he drove her to Michael's neighborhood, and he went home to wait for her call. Derek had believed Donna 100% that Michael was a threat to her and their family. He had bought that 38 to protect himself. One of their other brothers had seen a threatening text from Michael, the one about burning down their houses. So he wasn't just going on Donna's say-so that Michael was a threat. But even though Derek believed his sister, and he did believe her life was at risk, he asked her to reconsider what she had planned. Maybe try the police again. But Donna had a dozen emails from April to June showing that she had tried that and it didn't work. She said she had no other option. So Derek agreed to help her, though he wouldn't actually kill Michael himself. They chose the evening of July 4th for this murder to occur because the fireworks would hopefully cover any sound. Michael lived very close to the lake, and not far from where they would be shooting off the big annual fireworks show. 
And that's not to mention all the backyard displays going on. If someone heard a gunshot on the 4th of July in the middle of a fireworks display, they would not question it. It was around 7 p.m. on the 4th that Derek dropped Donna off. He drove off and she walked towards Michael's house. She had already texted Michael asking him to do a favor for her. Michael was living in one of his rental properties while he was remodeling another one that was going to be his permanent residence. So Donna asked him to go to his house that was being remodeled and take pictures of some of her things that were there and text them back to her. So while Michael thinks that he is taking pictures to text to Donna in Maui, she's actually standing across the street. She watches him as he left the rental property he was staying in and walked down the street to the other house to take the photographs. While he was gone, she slipped into the rental. She knew Michael wouldn't lock the door when he was leaving for such a short amount of time, and she was right. Donna hid in a corner, waiting for Michael to get back. When he did, she stepped out and shot him as the fireworks were going off. After the fireworks finale, Donna called Derek, and he drove out there to pick her up, about a block away from Michael's house. When he pulled up and Donna got into the car, he noticed that Donna had changed her shirt and her hands were shaking. Donna told Derek that she did it. She killed Michael. She hid in the house. When he came in, she cursed at him. She shot him five times, hitting him three. After Michael was down, he made a noise. So she hit him in the head with the butt of the gun. She also told Derek that she noticed Michael's iPhone was sitting on the counter, so she took it with her. She said, should the police come after her, there were messages on that phone that would help defend her. The two then went out to the bar, and the next day, Donna showed up on July 5th with no one except Derek knowing that she actually came in the day before. She drove to Michigan with her daughter to visit her mother as planned. There is a snapped episode on this case that said Donna returned to Kenosha to visit her dying mother, but that isn't supported by any of the evidence or the witness statements. Donna's mother did die while she was there, but it sounds like it was unexpected. And while the family was dealing with the loss of their mother, Donna and Derek were also dealing with the aftermath of the murder. Donna gave the gun back to Derek, who washed it in bleach and stashed it in Michigan with his ex-wife. He then threw the shell casings into the lake. Then Donna and Derek waited for news to hit about a man being found shot to death in his home. They waited and waited. Donna eventually went back to Maui. It took about three weeks until July 26th 
for Michael to be found. A crew was out doing sidewalk repair in front of his house. They were going door to door to notify the neighbors about the work that they would be doing. And one of the workers approached Michael's front door. Immediately, he could smell something awful. After he noticed a bunch of flies on the front window, he called 911. When the police arrived, they could smell the same odor as they approached the house. All of the doors were locked, so they entered through an unlocked window. Not too far into the front room, close to the front door, was a badly decomposed body. It was so bad that it was unrecognizable. But they found the wallet and they pulled out 51-year-old Michael Guyan's identification. He would be formally ID'd during the autopsy. Even though they weren't sure who the victim was, investigators knew it was a homicide because they could see the bullet holes in his shirt and there was no gun at the scene like you would expect with a suicide. They also knew this murder was not part of a robbery or a home invasion gone wrong because, of course, the wallet was still there, but there were also small but valuable items out in plain sight like his iPad. There were no signs of a ransacking or a forced entry. What they did conclude was that Michael was likely sitting in his chair when he was shot. There was a lot of blood and a bullet hole in the chair in his living room. The bullets that hit Michael made it to his chest, his lower abdomen, and his forearm near his elbow. Shots to the forearm are sometimes, but not always, defensive. Michael possibly lifted his arm up in front of himself when the gun was pointed at him and the trigger was pulled. Because they believed Michael was sitting when he was shot, he was either ambushed or he was at ease with the person who shot him. But Michael was not found in the chair. He had gotten up after he had been shot and made it a few feet towards the front door. There were blood smears from the doorknob down, as though Michael had attempted to escape. One of the bullets was more to his side, so it may have even been fired after he got up and was trying to get away. Initially, it was estimated that Michael had been dead about two to three weeks. The police canvassed the neighborhood, talking to residents about when they last saw Michael, and if they had heard anything that sounded like gunshots. The neighbors all had a similar story. Michael seemed nice enough, but he really kept to himself. The only time anyone saw him would be when he was out working on his house. He also liked to travel. So not seeing him for weeks at a time didn't alarm anyone. And if you can remember the time before coronavirus, people also left their homes to go to work and on vacation. So it was really difficult for his neighbors to pinpoint when they last saw him. The closest it was able to be narrowed down at that point 
was a neighbor who had talked to Michael midday on July 4th. As for hearing any gunshots, no one could remember, but of course, there were fireworks. However, this is the technological and digital age. It wasn't that hard to determine that all of Michael's accounts, social media, and his phone were active through July 4th, and then he dropped completely off the grid overnight. So they knew they were looking at their likely date of death right there. Investigators searched both the house Michael was found in and the one that was his normal residence. At the house that was his normal residence, the one being remodeled, they found a gun in a yellow bag that was hidden in a vase in the living room. This gun was a 380, not a 38, so it was not the murder weapon. But it seemed odd to them to have a gun hidden in that way, and it doesn't look like Michael was one of those guys with a lot of guns everywhere. So they had to wonder if he felt he was under some sort of threat that he wanted a gun within reach but hidden in his living room. In one of the two houses, I'm not sure which one, they found something that we would usually call a, quote, murder kit, though that seems entirely inappropriate here because we don't know what the bag was for. It was Michael's bag, and the things in it were his belongings. This bag had knives, duct tape, mace, rope, a window breaker, and some type of baton-style weapon. Again, we have no idea why he had this bag, but these items will come up again later. The detectives had to call Michael's next of kin, which would be his ex, Jamie, and their son, to inform them of his death. And of course, they wanted to talk to Jamie. Like with any investigation, you start with those closest to the victim. Jamie told them that she hadn't actually seen Michael in person in more than a year, and it had been several weeks since she had heard from him at all. Because her name was still connected with the property business and they shared a son together, who was a teenager at this point, they talked enough that it was uncommon to go quite this long without any communication. Jamie was on the West Coast, and they checked into it. She had not been to Wisconsin any time recently. Investigators also made contact with Donna, who I'm sure was high on their list to contact, because when they ran Michael's name, I'm sure the restraining order popped up. Or maybe they just checked their own emails, since she had been contacting them up to two weeks before Michael's presumed date of death. At this point, Donna was back in Maui, and she told them that friends had already contacted her about Michael's death. She let them know that he had terrorized her and her family for years, that Michael had been obsessive and controlling, so she wasn't that broken up about his death, but she did deny any involvement. She said that Michael had ties to the mob, 
and that he used that as a threat against her and her family. She also gave them the story about moving to get away from him. Donna followed it up by saying that she hadn't heard from Michael in weeks, which was incredibly uncommon. She was playing it innocent and acted like she had no idea why he suddenly stopped harassing her, just that she was glad he did, and she didn't know anything else. I don't think she sounded too convincing because they also called her family to check into these threats made by Michael against them. And they backed up what Donna said, and her brother Derek even went to the police station to talk. He was cordial, but not super chatty, and he denied being anywhere near Michael on July 4th. He said he had gone to a bar with some friends that night. But Donna had not just brought up that Michael had threatened her, had threatened her family. She also brought up this vague mob angle. So they checked into that. There was nothing on Michael's computer that indicated he knew anyone in the mob or had any communications with them. The Kenosha police had the FBI's organized crime division check into his name in connection with literally anyone, and they got no hits. That was a dead end, but it wasn't something they dwelt on for very long, because three days after Michael's body was found on July 29th, a man named Josh called the police. He was a close friend and neighbor of Derek's, and he told the police he basically knew what happened. Now, Josh didn't necessarily know what happened, but he had deduced what happened from the information he had. Derek had told him about the issues with Michael and said that if no one was going to help Donna, he would have to take care of it. Josh said that Donna and Derek talked over text about wanting to kill Michael for the way he had treated her. On July 4th, Josh and Derek were supposed to go watch the fireworks together, but Derek backed out at the last minute saying he was going out for a drink instead. He left, came back shortly, and then left again. After that day, Derek seemed really withdrawn. Then his mother died, and Josh was straight up worried Derek was suicidal. But of course, it wasn't until Michael's body was found that Josh put it all together. So he called Derek and asked him, what did you do? According to Josh, Derek basically said, you didn't see anything. The police believed that this was a solid lead, especially when Josh said he was sure the murder weapon was a 38, since that's the gun he knew Derek owned. That detail had not been in the press. The police asked Josh if he would wear a wire to try to get some evidence against Derek, which he did. In the conversation, Josh was telling Derek if he didn't do it, if Donna did it, then he could get out of it. Derek referred back to the first interview he had with police, and he said that they told him that whether he did it or he helped Donna do it, it was about the same in the end. And then he told Josh he didn't do it. This recording was incriminating. Though Derek denied he did it, he definitely made it sound like he helped Donna. It gave the police a reason to bring Derek in for more questioning, and it also gave them the angle to use 
when they approached him, focus on Derek as an accomplice and Donna as the shooter. And this time when they questioned him, Derek told them what he knew. He told about the threats, the driving Donna to the house, picking her up after. He said that Donna was back in Hawaii and finally free of Michael. He told the police that they needed to get the messages, the texts, the emails, the whatever from iCloud, and they would see the threats Michael made and that Michael drove Donna to do this. Derek also pointed out that he told Donna to go to the police and that she had, but that the police had not done anything. After Derek's statement, the police were able to recover the murder weapon from his ex-wife's house, and Derek was put under arrest for first-degree murder. And now it was time for them to look for Donna. She was back in Maui, and she knew her brother had been arrested, so the authorities did not want to waste much time getting there and interviewing her. But when the two Kenosha detectives got to Maui, They learned Donna had just left on a plane headed for Seattle. Her flight left an hour before theirs landed. The trip to Maui, though, was not entirely wasted. I believe it was on this trip that they recovered Michael's cell phone that Donna had stashed with a friend. This was more evidence against her, since Michael's phone was the only thing stolen when he was killed. But there was a problem with getting Donna. They knew when she would land at the SeaTac airport, but they did not have a warrant for her arrest. They were just going to Maui to talk to her. If she was about to go on the run, they couldn't stop her. They could have the police meet her in Seattle. They could ask her, oh so nicely, to talk to them, but without a warrant, They could not detain her. She could walk out the door and disappear. So they hurried to get an arrest warrant issued during the time Donna's plane was in the air. Fortunately for the authorities, it came through before she landed. So Donna was arrested once on the ground. She was charged with first-degree murder, and another charge of armed burglary would be added later for her taking Michael's phone. For what it's worth, Donna said she was not about to go underground. She knew they had arrested Derek, and she was heading back to Kenosha to turn herself in. This investigation moved quickly. Let me recap this timeline. Michael was found on July 26th. August 1st, Derek was arrested, and then on August 3rd, Donna was arrested. But then things slowed way, way down. It would take nearly two years for Donna to go to trial, in part because a lot happened in pre-trial. It almost feels like the outcome of the actual trial was set before they even seated a single jury member because of what happened in pre-trial. For one thing, both Donna and Derek were offered plea deals. Eventually, Derek took his. He initially entered a plea of not guilty by reason of mental defect. Derek had a long history of being treated for mental health issues by a number of psychiatrists, 
So he had a foundation to build this defense. But he eventually took the deal for second-degree murder and a sentencing recommendation of seven years, contingent on him testifying against Donna at her trial. Donna, however, turned down the plea deal. This defense was going to be one of self-defense. The state tried to bar it, but the judge went ahead and allowed for this case to be presented. Self-defense in Wisconsin requires an eminent threat, but it does not define what that means, so the judge agreed to allow the jury to decide. But other things in this pretrial process did not come down in Donna's favor, not even close. For instance, Donna's side hired an expert on battered woman syndrome. He interviewed Donna, but the judge said before the trial that he could only testify broadly on the topic, not specifically about Donna. And then the defense wanted to bring into evidence past relationships Michael had that were physically abusive, including the relationship with his son's mother. While Donna and Jamie never met in person from April until June 2016, so the same months that Donna started to plot Michael's murder, Jamie and Donna had talked on the phone multiple times. Jamie told Donna about the physical abuse in their relationship that had required her to seek medical treatment. The judge said Jamie could testify on Donna's behalf, but she confined Jamie's testimony to only things she told Donna, not all of the abuse. Nothing that Donna didn't know about would be allowed in. The logic here is that Donna said she was acting in self-defense. She couldn't be threatened by things that happened that she didn't know about. And that logic also applied to the bag found at Michael's house, the one with the knives and the duct tape and all that stuff. The defense wanted to use it as proof Michael did, in fact, plan on killing Donna. But there was no proof Donna knew about it, and it couldn't have threatened her unless she knew. So those are the big things that were not allowed into the trial. So let's get into what did happen in the trial. We are going to do it highlight real style rather than a full accounting. As usual, I've already covered much of what the trial revealed. So let's get into these text messages because they were a huge part of the case for both sides. Was Michael abusive? Did he send repeated threatening messages? Did he stalk Donna? And did Donna have a reason to believe she and or her family were in danger? In the least surprising news of all time, the state said no to all of the above. They showed many texts that revealed that parts of the story Donna told her family and friends were false. For instance, when Donna went to New Orleans with her daughter, and Michael sent her a picture of the house she was staying at. They couldn't find that text. There were messages back and forth during that time period, but none with a picture of that house. And while Donna kept telling people she was moving to get away from Michael, Michael was actually 
with her some of that time. They spent time together in Kenosha, but also traveling in Colorado and Arizona. They were together when Donna left Arizona for North Carolina to live with one of her brothers. She did leave him suddenly and with no warning. Michael had gone to the fitness club one day, and when he got back, she was gone. Though Donna said he tracked her to her brother's house, the text messages say the opposite. Michael texted, referring to not knowing where she was. To me, it looks like Donna was fleeing Michael when she left Arizona. She waited for him to leave where they were staying, and she took off. And she didn't tell him where she went. But Donna made it sound like Michael had tracked her to Arizona, not that she was with him while there. And when Donna went back to Kenosha before moving to Hawaii, she secretly stayed with Michael. She said Michael tracked her to Hawaii, but the text messages show that he knew she was going there, and she texted him a selfie shortly after landing in Maui. But it is true that when Michael indicated he was going out to Hawaii, Donna told him not to come. She didn't want him there, and he showed up anyway. Once there, they did continue a relationship. The prosecution was telling the jury, okay, sure, Michael was not a great boyfriend. And maybe the jury didn't even like him. He was clearly verbally abusive in some of these texts. He used racial and homophobic slurs against her friends. He called her a slut and worse. And of course, he posted revenge porn. But the prosecution said the case was not about any of that. It was about whether Donna feared for her life and believed the threat was imminent. These texts showed in the state's eyes that this was not the fear-for-her-life scenario Donna had been portraying for nearly a year. What Donna was really afraid of was that Michael would ruin her reputation and expose her to her friends and family for lying about him. There is no self-defense defense for that. The state had even more texts to discredit Donna's version of the relationship. Of course, Michael being a super tracker lie, that was probably the biggest. But a smaller one, just for an example, was a story about Donna having to hide from Michael at a party. She said that she was so afraid of him, she left the party early. But her text messages at the time about the party that she sent to her older daughter said that she left because the younger daughter had embarrassed her at the event, not that Michael caused her to flee to safety. Even Donna's story about Michael stealing her belongings, things like her dog tags and her father's urn, that's half a story. He did taunt her with photographs of himself with those things. He texted a threat to destroy her stuff. But Donna also had access to the house these items were in, and she could have taken them back. In one instance, Donna was in the house, and she took some things back. She could have taken more. As much as the state wanted to glance by Michael's threatening texts, the defense used them, obviously, to prove their side. 
Michael texted things like, one call, one shot, referring to this alleged connection to mobsters who could kill her family, and he lorded this threat over Donna. And he did say something about burning down her brother's house. And there was also a text about Donna dying and then he'd die, which reads like murder-suicide to me. There were witnesses who said they saw Michael show up at Donna's work and refuse to leave. They would have to escort him out to the parking lot. And we know he showed up at her bus stop when she was on her way to work. After he was served with a restraining order, he knew he couldn't be there. And this is the thing with this case. Both sides were right. Michael did threaten Donna, and he was, at the very least, verbally abusive. But Donna did lie about the details to people for nearly a year leading up to the murder. The state also wanted to point out to the jury that these mean and abusive texts were not one way. After Michael was served with the restraining order in Maui, Donna texted him stuff like she hoped he died. With restraining orders, neither side should be contacting the other. There were other texts over that year of her wishing him dead and telling him to go be with his twin Satan, and there were a lot of ugly arguments back and forth. We could risk splitting hairs and say that wishing someone was dead isn't as bad as threatening to kill them, but the prosecution wanted to make this look like a mutually toxic relationship rather than an abusive one. They also had jailhouse informants testifying against Donna, but the main thing they brought to light was a tattoo that Donna had. After killing Michael, Donna got a sea turtle tattoo with some symbols on it, and fourth was in the center, the number four with a TH after it. Donna told the jailhouse informant that it symbolized freedom, and the 4th of July was that day for her because Michael couldn't threaten or control her anymore. This tattoo does not speak to how Donna felt before she killed Michael. It doesn't say she didn't feel scared or threatened. It could be seen as someone who suffered horrible abuse and was happy to be free. But let's be honest, it did not play well. We tend to think that someone who killed in self-defense still feels remorse that they were put in that situation. Not joy, not enough to want to get a colorful tattoo memorializing it. Relevant or not, it didn't play well. Donna took the stand in her own defense. Under Wisconsin's self-defense law, the defendant does not have to take the stand if there is enough evidence that this was self-defense otherwise. But since Donna's case hinged not just on what Michael did, but Donna's interpretation of the threat due to battered woman syndrome, she had to tell her story to the jury. She had to give her view of those texts and situations. She was on the stand for two and a half days. The first day was direct examination, and Donna talked about all the threats we've already covered. She talked about not just the pictures he posted on Facebook, 
but that Michael told her he had a recording of them having sex that she did not know he made, and he threatened to send the DVDs of it out to other people. She said she was only in contact with him because of his threats. The only way to appease Michael was to keep talking to him. Donna said that before the killing, Michael made it clear that she needed to come back to Kenosha and marry him, or he would make good on all of his threats. He was going to kill her and her family. She felt she had already exhausted her options, and the police were not helping. They couldn't even get him to stop posting illegal revenge porn while violating a restraining order. So how were they going to stop him from something even more serious? To save her life and her family's lives, Donna told the jury she had to kill Michael. Now, during cross-examination, the prosecutor did lead Donna into a few traps, where she would ask Donna about something, Donna would tell her story, and then the prosecutor would whip out a text message of Donna saying something different or just sending affectionate I love you texts to Michael in the same time period she was complaining something terrible happened. When asked why she removed the Kenosha restraining order, Donna said Michael forced her to, and so the prosecutor brought out the lovey-dovey texts showing that they were actually back together at the time. All Donna could say was that, well, it must have been a happy time in their relationship because like most abusive relationships, there were good times. But if Donna's saying Michael forced her to remove the order, how can she also say it was a good time in the relationship? It was these types of questions that led Donna down a path where it looked like she was lying in her testimony. The prosecutor showed a lot of texts from Michael that challenged Donna's portrayal of the relationship, Texts that told her not to come back. One that said, if I can't have you, go and be free. Even the threat to burn down her brother's house came after Donna sent a text threatening to burn Michael's possessions. Donna accused Michael of sexually assaulting her in Hawaii when he first got there, but she never mentioned that in her application for the restraining order. There were even pictures of the two of them together looking happy. Donna just repeated that she was appeasing him. She was afraid to make Michael angry, and that influenced a lot of her behavior. So then the prosecution pulled out a text from July 2015 after one of the breakups, and Donna texted her daughter about posting something on Facebook because she wanted to make him angry. So if she was so afraid of making him angry, why did Donna purposely try to provoke him? Now, I'm trying to give you information rather than my opinion so that you're open to making your own decision in this case. But there is something called reactive abuse. And this is when the victim is reacting to the abuse they are experiencing and their reaction is also abusive. They may scream or curse or even hit their abuser. They're lashing out in reaction to what they've experienced. 
and you have to wonder if that's what Donna was doing here. On the other hand, we also see this in the other direction. Donna threatened to destroy Michael's belongings, and he reacted by threatening to burn down her brother's house. So was she being the abuser and he was the reactor? So that question brings us to the somewhat controversial concept of mutual abuse, where both partners are more or less equally abusive to each other. While some experts don't believe it exists at all, consensus is that it's at least very, very uncommon because abuse requires a power imbalance and control dynamics that would be very hard to have equally distributed in a relationship. Reactive abuse is much more likely what people see when they're looking at a relationship that appears from the outside to be mutually abusive. Whether Michael and Donna's relationship was incredibly toxic or abusive, and which one was the primary abuser, well, that's one of the things that is up for debate at the trial. The state was pushing the mutually toxic angle, and that if Michael was the abusive one, it was verbal abuse, giving Donna no reason to fear for her physical safety. Donna's defense called their battered woman syndrome expert to explain why the state was all wrong on this, but the judge had already excluded all of his testimony about their specific relationship and about Donna. So everything he said was just more general in nature. The defense had Michael's ex-girlfriend, who was also confined. She could only testify to what she told Donna. After all the testimony, there was over two hours of closing arguments, which I listened to and do not recommend. There was a lot of discussion about jury instructions, and then the jury was given the case. Their options were first-degree murder, second-degree murder, or an acquittal, and they also had to decide on the armed burglary charge. After two and a half hours, they came back. They acquitted on the armed burglary charge, but found Donna guilty of first-degree murder. One of the jurors spoke to the Kenosha News after the trial to give some insight on what happened during deliberations. The expert on domestic violence and battered women's syndrome actually ended up hurting the defense, since he wasn't allowed to say that he talked to Donna. The jury asked during their deliberations if they could have a copy of his report, and the judge said no. They would have to go off their memory of what he testified to, but his written report was not in evidence. It doesn't seem that the jury understood that it was the judge who would not let it in, not the defense. They made the erroneous assumption that the defense would have admitted the full report had it backed up their position. Since they didn't present it, perhaps it went against Donna and they were withholding it. But the truth was, it did back up Donna's claims, but the juror said not having the report pushed the jury fully into the guilty side of things. The juror also said he was surprised when he found out about the bag with the duct tape and the knives and the rope that the judge wouldn't let in. He said it should have been admitted because that's the defense's whole argument, that Michael was an eminent threat to Donna 
and her family. The bag would go a long way into proving that Michael had bad intentions. So when I said the pre-trial pretty much determined the outcome, it's because of what this juror said. Excluded evidence would have swayed the jury in the other direction. But we can't say for sure that this would have led to a different verdict in the end. We really don't know what the jury would have done and the way the prosecution and defense would frame things with this evidence. The state and the defense both had the chance to present the text messages that bolstered their claims, and the jury just did not see the abuse and stalking that Donna claimed. They did not see an imminent threat that would require her to fly 4,000 miles, lie in wait, and ambush Michael Guyon. In Wisconsin, first-degree intentional homicide carries a life sentence, but there is a possibility of parole, the minimum non-parole period being 20 years. So there was still a fight to be had on August 31st at the sentencing hearing. With the minimum, Donna was 52, so she would be in prison until she was 72. Her attorney argued that at that age, she wouldn't be a threat to anyone if released. She also had no criminal record or a history of violence. He said it was a sick relationship that both sides contributed to and that Donna was a product of the relationship. It might seem a little odd that he's not sticking with the abused woman self-defense angle that he fought so hard about. But it's not all that uncommon to see a slight shift at sentencing. Proving your innocence is over with. The best shot at not spending the rest of your life in prison is to act contrite, remorseful, and like you are owning up to whatever you did to contribute to the situation. So basically what he's doing here is not saying that he doesn't believe she was an abused woman. He's basically trying to get her a shot at parole. Donna spoke on her own behalf, saying that she wasn't the manipulator she was portrayed as, and she was genuinely scared when she murdered Michael. She apologized to his family and her own. There were letters submitted on her behalf, including one from Michael's son, who was 20 years old at that point. He wrote that he was terrified of his father after the physical and psychological abuse that he and his mother had suffered. Since Donna had killed his father, he had felt a peace he hadn't known before. This was a rather remarkable part of a rather routine sentencing hearing because you don't often have a member of the victim's family showing support for the killer. But the judge was not buying it. She said the motivation here was hatred, and she then sentenced Donna to life without parole. When Donna was let out of court afterwards, she was crying, and she yelled something like, You know he's an animal. You know he's a freak. Some sources say she yelled it at Michael Guyan's family, but others make it sound like, she was just yelling it at the court in general. After Donna's sentencing was her brother Derek's sentencing, he was facing 60 years, but in accordance with the plea deal, the state asked for seven. Derek told the judge he genuinely thought Donna and Michael had been broken up for a year and that Michael was 
not leaving their family alone. The judge acknowledged that Derek had been manipulated by his sister and gave him the seven years the prosecutor asked for. Donna is currently seeking post-conviction relief. There is a hearing scheduled for this summer on it, and if anything big happens, I'll be sure to keep you updated. Derek will be released from prison in three years. On this week's Get Vocal livestream, we will discuss this case and the verdict with Mo Blackwell. She is the host of the podcast Targeted True Crime Domestic Violence. Her show takes a research-based academic look at domestic violence cases, and I thought she would be a great person to get some input from. You can watch the live stream on Get Vocal or the Crime Lines Facebook page, and I take as many comments and questions as I can from the chat rooms in both places to keep things interactive. I am interested in hearing your thoughts on Donna and on this case. But more important than that, if you recognized elements of your own relationship in this episode, I have left phone numbers and websites in the show notes of places you can reach out for help. Because love shouldn't hurt. (laughs) 